Hello, Misfits. Welcome to this special episode of Miss Radio. I'm your host, Madeline Smith. And in today's episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with our local social justice hero, Matt Huerta. My interview with Matt was prompted by an event happening today called MiraFest. This is an incredible annual event in its second year, hosted by the Middlebury Immigrant Rights Alliance, also known as Mira. I've always loved that name because it's very fitting for the work that Mira does to advocate for immigrants' rights. For those of you who don't speak Spanish, Mira means look. It is the command form of the word mirar, which means to look. When you look, you see. And when you see, hopefully you help. That's exactly what Matt Huerta does. He helps people in his community in so many ways. This man does everything from affordable housing to defunding the police with some environmental work sprinkled in. So please, give yourself the hour to listen to this inspiring conversation with Matt and check out Mira whenever you have a chance. Thanks so much, and I hope you enjoy. Hey, Matt. Can you hear me? Hello. Yeah, I can hear you now. Awesome. Hi, it's nice to see you. Happy Sunday. How are things? They're good. They're good. Yeah, I got an event going on right after this recording, so busy, but good. Um, Good. Yeah. So, okay. I've already started recording. So I just want to let you know that. Yeah. And yeah. So hi, welcome. I'm so happy that you agreed to chat with me today about all the work that you're doing in Monterey County. Um, so first I think I would like to talk about, um, you know, you and I have worked, not worked, but we've talked together uh, a couple of times through Emmy. And yeah. um, I, so I, I kind of have an, an idea about all of the work that you guys are doing around affordable housing through MBEP, Monterey Bay Economic Partnership. Um, and I'm really grateful for the email that you sent me with all of the things I've, I've you, when you came on, I was writing notes about how they all they all tie together and uh you know i'm just really excited about all the things that you're involved in i think that it's such important work for uh for the community at large so um i think i'd like to to get off and just have you introduce yourself to our listeners you know uh who is matt huerta sure thank you maddie and i appreciate you having me on on a sunday and taking some time and uh, getting to know each other, leaving a little bit more and giving me an opportunity to um, share some information and have a good dialogue about, you know, what what kind of stuff is going on in, in the county and in our region. And um, yeah, let's just have a good dialogue. So yeah, you know, I, I grew up in um, the Central Valley, Visalia, Fresno, Clovis area, um, very uh, working class background and stuff. And um my parents uh, were in retail and had gotten married early, like 16 and 19. So started their family way early and um, had us uh, four kids. And in, in North Visalia is very much a, a community like East Salinas. And um, I didn't know I was going to end up over here in East Salinas. I uh, actually, um, again, grew up in uh, North Visalia till I was about 10 and then um, went to Fresno schools and then Clovis schools after that. And if you know the Central Valley, you know, those even public education schools are very different communities and uh, the, the diversity 
involved with each are very different and class structure and all that. But I was fortunate enough to get to a Clovis High School, very good one, Buchanan High School. And that helped me get into uh, UC Davis right out of school, along with um, really leveraging my relationship uh, relationships, but also uh, experience with um, affirmative action programs like math, engineering, science achievement. Um, so grounded in that. Um, and my mom had had a uh, really successful career in small business uh, with her a, a successful appraisal business that helped us get into that uh, really nice neighborhood in Clovis. And so I kind of know what it looks like to go to very under-resourced schools and very, very highly resourced schools. So that's just in the back, my background. And then going to UC Davis, I learned quickly what it, it, you know, that I was a fish out of water in terms of, of the caliber of education that, that I needed to, to rise up for. And I really wasn't as prepared as I thought I was, but aside from figuring that out and finding some really amazing friends and, um, I was uh, really drawn to folks that were doing student activist work in the community, not only on campus, but off campus and engaging in initiatives at the time. This is like 1998. So there was a lot of stuff on the ballot that was talking about trying to overturn um, Prop 209 as an example that had just recently passed a couple of years before that, that ended affirmative action. So I got involved with that issue right away. Um, issues around environmental and sustainable sustainability issues around unionization. So I just kind of shot out of a cannon in terms of getting involved with, with, uh, politics and, um, never really looked back. I've just kind of been a student activist ever since and got involved with student government, uh, started my career in affordable housing and found urban planning, community, and regional development at urban in at Davis. And that just rolled right into a career um, after some internship programs that how, how I found that um, I had a couple of really amazing internship programs that I can tell you about because I've since have created new internship programs based on those those early days and um, have just kind of evolved into project management development director and, and executive level roles and then most recently in the last few years I started my own business. Uh, doing housing and community development consulting across the Bay Area and out of Monterey County. And the Monterey Bay Economic Partnership uh, has been one of my steady clients uh, for at least the last three or four years now. And I've helped them uh, launch their housing initiative and bring on amazing talent like, you know, you mentioned Emmy, Emily Ham earlier. She's one of the amazing uh, young professionals that I get to work with and help coach her as she's uh, expanding her horizons and doing really deep, meaningful work here in the, the Monterey Bay. So um, yeah, we can kind of go from there, but, you know, aside from kind of that, that career kind of pathway along the way, I've always got involved with activism uh, again, since those early days as a student activist, getting involved with different movements and just having social justice and environmental and economic justice as, as kind of underpinnings of, of everything I do and the other amazing people I get to work with kind of feed me and feed that, that energy going forward. Yeah. Um, do you call her Emily? That's so, that's so funny. She's just so well, Emmy to me. It's so funny because I've known her as Emmy, yeah. but then she's, she's, she even herself said recently, she's having kind of, she's going through her identity crisis yeah. because she was, <laughs> Emily sounds like a little more grown up and yeah. a little more professional. So she kind of wants to establish like an Emily brand. Yeah. And an Emmy brand. And I, I told her it's probably okay to have both, right? Yeah. Like I'm Matt and Matthew and Mateo, depending on like who I'm dealing with. So yeah, we're all versatile. That's so funny though. I'm going to Emmy, I'm calling you out. I'm going to yank your chain about that one. 
Um, so you said is Clovis, I know Fresno, my dad grew up in Hanford. Um, oh, yeah. so have you ever been to Hanford? Have you ever, I always ask people from that area if they know of Superior Dairy. It's my favorite. I know Hanford, Hanford is very well, partly because I married this wonderful woman, Diana Magnia Huerta and Magnia. If you know any Magnias in Hanford, they're all related. There's like 14 boys. Really? That, or not boys, but there was 14 siblings yeah. at one point. And, um, they're all based there. So um, they've gone on other places since then. But so I married into a family that was based out of Hanford and we've been there lots of times. And Superior Dairy was like one of our first dates. That That's so great. Yeah. So it's so very cool. Yeah. Anytime we go with my dad down to visit my grandparents, we, it's like a, it's a family tradition. We have it, even if we're full, we don't want, it's like, Oh, we got, we have to go, you know? And each time you forget how big the portions are, um, but it's a, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, but thank you for sharing that very concise background on, on, you know, on what you've experienced and, um, kind of what shot you and, and started your trajectory and, and kind of, like you said, you shot out of a cannon and I, I really love that. Um, but if you can think back or I, I find this as a passionate activist, you know, people say, what, what are your identities? What do you, what would you say you are first? And I always say I'm an activist first. Uh, and that, it just seems very inherent to me and very innate to me. Um, but what would you say, it was for you starting starting back in your youth, right in college. What was it that drew you to that? What, if you can remember, like the feelings that you had, or or the interests that you had, was there anything in particular that made you think, like, yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna dive into this work? Yeah, I just I just felt like it was it was the right thing to do, and that it was so meaningful to be involved with other people that were trying to you know, selflessly help others. And I kind of, I started to understand what altruism really meant, right? Like genuine interest in the welfare of others. And what does that look like? You know, that looks like trying to make sure that there's an even playing field. That looks like trying to make sure that everybody has access to clean air and water and education and, you know, kind of the protecting the commons, right? taking classes about what, it, you know, um, how far we've come and yet how far we still need to go. And so I realized then that I needed to be part of, you know, neutrality wasn't an option. Yeah. That if that if I truly wanted to be involved and in my heart um, and now my education was telling me, damn, you know, most everything I've ever learned was like kind of built on lies or not or half truths, right? Like, why am I still celebrating Christopher Columbus? Like, what the hell? And now I, you know, I've definitely at that point had had, had interactions that were very racist. Mm -hmm. But I didn't understand exactly all the dynamics around race, class, and gender. And I took a few classes around that and engaged, you know, these very deep philosophical and, and personal conversations and debates even, whatever. But it all helped me understand myself right and deal with my identity and as i was rolling through that kind of identity crisis and coming up with okay well i guess i guess i am latino i am chicano i'm hispanic i'm all these other things but you know a lot of that's what other people think of me 
now I have the opportunity and the power to take it and, you know, be comfortable with the identity that I want. Yeah. Who am I? Who am I? And who do I want to be? And I realized that, yeah, I want to be a, you know, I'm an American, United Statesian, right? But I'm a Chicano activist. Yeah. And what does that mean? What does that look like? And how can I get allies? Because I know that I can't do it alone and I'm only one person. How can I connect with others and be part of a movement? And that got me into lots of different things. But, um, and again, then along the way, trying to figure out, okay, well, I can't stay an activist forever after three or four years of, you know, raising hell and organizing and getting involved with all kinds of initiatives and student government, and off-campus stuff, state-level stuff, national movement stuff. But I was like, well, I got to make money at some point. I have all this 20, 30K yeah. of debt now. I'm like, I got I to gotta figure out how to pay the bills, right? And the whole time I was actually, you know, working uh, 15 to 20 hours a week. So oh. work was never too far from, you know, out of my mind because I always had to, you know, uh, put myself and uh, and me and my wife really through through school we we paid each other's bills and at the time we were just living together but we really helped build each other up and that's part of the reason why we have such a strong relationship um but uh yeah just um again i think the passion comes from drawing the connections between my personal identity my family and where we come from and um you know then learning uh, you know, learning about the, the state of the world and that I had to feeling like I had to choose. Yeah. I think, and I, I love that. I, I think that that is a, it is kind of a place that people get to within their, within themselves, if they're paying attention, in my opinion, you know, if, if you are paying attention to the world and what's going on around you. And, um, that usually comes from, if you're from a place of privilege like myself, uh, it comes from certain things, certain experiences I've had. Um, and, and a lot of the time I feel like for, you know, the global majority and communities of the global majority, it kind of comes from experience of, of not growing in an environment of, of the privilege that, you know, other, other people have that, that the white normal has. Um, but going from there, now that passion has transformed through time and you said that you have your own business and I know you mostly as working in affordable housing with MBEP. So how has that student activist identity translated into the work that you're doing now? And I'd like to start specifically with affordable housing. Yeah, my my internet was unstable for a second. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. Okay, sorry. Can you repeat I, that last? I time? can totally repeat it. Um, I would just I would love to to ask you, how does that passion and that realization of you know fighting for the common good and coming from a place of altruism, how does that student activist inside of you translate into the work that you're doing now with MBEP? Um, and affordable housing and, and the work that you're doing with them. Yeah. So the thing that helped me realize that I could make an impact in urban planning and affordable housing was I had to find the field first. And so I really have to credit the California coalition for rural housing internship program, which I, uh, it was a one year long paid internship 
that was totally designed to try to get people of color from backgrounds such as I had, you know, my grandfather's a, a bracero, most of my family comes from, you know, farm working background and got into other other things, but very rooted in that. And um, uh, the whole idea for the internship program was to build a kind of a professional class of, of young professionals that come from that background and uh, that um, start to have leadership roles in the affordable housing development space because that space has just become super complicated and very, you know, you have to be able to talk to banks and investors and architects and contractors and city officials and, you know, all these different things that takes a certain amount of hard skills that you just don't pick up anywhere. And also the soft skills that even if you have those soft skills, you you can kind of tap out in terms of how far you can go if you don't understand all the the technical aspects of how what it takes to get affordable housing uh, built and financed and all those things. And so that one year internship program through UC Davis and being at Community Housing Opportunities Corporation out of Davis um, gave me that background that I needed, gave me the vocab, the starting point of a vocabulary, helped me understand that this is where I needed that it, I found a home. And so soon thereafter, again, it evolved into all these other roles. Um, but um, bringing me forward to now in terms of the that trajectory, you know, I am very fortunate to be able to pick pretty much all my work. Um, so I intentionally created my consulting practice in 2016-ish timeframe to basically pick, you know, I have three different um, kind of focus areas and it's all stuff that I love to do. And so chances are, you know, I'm going to be doing any given day, any hour of the day, I'm working on something that is pretty much in alignment with my passion. And it's one is leadership development around coaching and providing support to other professionals. And so I do that through MBEP now, and that's kind of changed a little bit because MBEP really started off with me creating, creating and launching an initiative that's, that was based on, like a public-private partnership. So that was really the second bucket that I focus on is creating these public-private partnerships that require a diverse set of, of stakeholders. You know, some folks I disagree with, some folks that, you know, I tend to not hang out with on the weekends, right? These big, huge CEOs that run, you know, multinational corporations or banks or da, 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 da. I'm like, yeah, you know, maybe we can get along with certain things, but I'm probably not going to be hanging out with them on the weekend. Our values don't align all the time. But if they want to invest in certain neighborhoods, you know, that need more investment. And if they want to partner and make uh, their money work for the, the bro broader set of the community, that's something I'm interested in. Let's work together on, right? So that kind of stuff, that's community initiatives. And the third bucket is just the bricks and mortar side of it, like the technical affordable housing development. Mm -hmm. And that is more around the financing and the pulling the design teams together sometimes, getting entitlements for, for uh, you, know, new pro, uh, you, know, you know, new projects, uh, typically multifamily projects that are tax credit financed. And so those are kind of typically the, the most complicated transactions in this space. But I have 10, 15 years of experience doing that. And so I wanna be able to offer that as something I do, not all the time, but I feel like that's a space that's really important for people of color, especially, or people from, you know, you know, the community that is most impacted 
uh, to engage in that space so that it's not people from outside of that community always designing for that and doing all the fundraising and taking all the credit and all that stuff. That Definitely there's a piece of that that's important and we need allies and we all need to work together. But certainly the folks that are from the community, those communities impacted should be in leadership roles. And that's what why I have to kind of model that process myself instead of just, okay, getting out of that altogether. But I have two or three clients in each space. And MBEP is the space that I do a lot of the public-private com you know, community initiative, um, cross-sector work, and then, um, and then also the leadership coaching. And so the leadership coaching has been a more recent thing when the last couple of years where I and Kate Roberts, the CEO, and several of the board members were very successful in getting the Community Foundation of Monterey County and the Monterey Peninsula Foundation, the, the folks that put on the Pebble Beach and all those amazing things, to getting those funds and having a multi-year, it was a six to $700,000 investment, and that's created multi-year resources to hire staff and actually try to very strategically increase the supply of affordable housing on the peninsula and in other communities across the, the region. But I've been really proud of the work that we've all been doing around the peninsula because even folks out there recognize that they're not doing their fair share of affordable housing. Mm -hmm. But for some reason over the last 20 years, most of the projects that have come forward usually get denied or delayed or litigated or whatever because of water, because of whatever issues. But we're kind of muddling through all those things. And a lot of times it comes down to the question of political will. Mm -hmm. And um, so then you have to make sure to support the right candidates. You have to ensure that those candidates understand how affordable housing and housing works. Um, you have to engage in all kinds of other, you know, uh, related uh, pol political, um, you know, pieces, again, maybe around infrastructure, water, uh, issues, transportation, education, you know, there's all kinds of other things that, that fit and that um, have to be in alignment in order for housing to work. Mm -hmm. But I think we've made a lot of progress and I'm super excited about what the city is doing, the county's making some moves, the state has done a lot in the last few years to create some really strong um, policies that will force the hand of local governments if they're not going to follow through with the plans that they set forward to meet the housing needs uh, of their low, very low income folks and workforce needs. Uh, so I think things are starting to come into alignment uh, a lot stronger in the last, I'd say three to four years. And I, I am pretty confident in the next five to 10 years that we're gonna see a, a, a significant amount of, of production of affordable housing in our region and particularly on the peninsula. But um, it's a long time coming. And that's the hard part is that there's the production side of stuff and then the last thing I'll say on this, and you probably have other questions, but the, the other thing that I, I'm happy about MBEP um, is that they've really embraced our work around um, helping to educate folks, but also reaching out to other partners like United Way, Monterey County, uh, Catholic Charities, um, other folks on the ground, Community uh, Center for Community Advocacy, uh, uh, California uh, Rural Assistance Corporation, uh, the or the CRLA or legal, uh, rural legal assistance. These partnerships have been critical right now, especially during the health emergency with COVID, because it has been 
more important actually to focus on keeping people housed so that we don't get a worse homelessness situation and other you know overcrowded conditions that we're going to worsen our health conditions so while i've spent most of my time and energy and career on production of affordable housing and creating these new partners for more supply over the last few months i'd say that i've i've really learned a lot and have had to focus on making sure that we strengthen the the policies and and provide more resources so that people that are currently housed stay housed and i think we need to continue doing that going forward and so i think there's a higher level of recognition that that helps everybody whether you're a student or a farm worker or anything else and so you're going to see a lot more of those kinds of of efforts um you know, stemming from either MBEP's work, but again, others. A lot of what MBEP does is supplement the work of others. Uh, we don't really do a lot of a direct, we don't do any really direct service work. We kind of coordinate and convene and support a, a lot of work that's already happening. Yeah. Well, that's really heartwarming to hear because I feel like my pulse on the situation is that there was really not a lot of incentive to build affordable housing with the real estate market the way it is here in california and knowing what an intersectional issue it is you know you you, you mentioned the water board and the the one city council meeting that i went to and and i was with there with emmy um you know we went and we were speaking for uh, Garden Road is the is the project that um, that we were speaking for, and it got approved, but then it got tied up in the water board, right? And and it went up to like the state level or whatever. So it's really heartwarming to hear that that it's coming to fruition in in the foreseeable future, and that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And I just want to thank you for you know this work is it's long work it's it, you got to be in it to win it and committed because it is longevity and all those moving pieces that you discussed and you know the private public sector which i think is fascinating and i'll probably ask for a follow-up conversation about that because i could talk about that and all my questions just at length by itself but um yeah i think that that's really wonderful to hear that it seems like the incentives are shifting and that things are are coming to fruition and you know you mentioned covid but also i mean that that in and of itself is huge but also we saw with the wildfires the you know the air quality just not having people housed is not an an option and so you know it needs to it needs to move in that direction so that's really really wonderful to hear and thank you for explaining in such detail and and um uh, so comprehensively what MBEP is doing and what you get to do. It sounds like you've just succeeded in terms of building this business with all these main pillars that you're passionate about. I think that that's fantastic. Um, and I really love the leadership aspect. You know, it sounds like I feel like the other side of that coin is like mentorship and correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, I feel like that's so important of, of passing the torch and uh, this concept of like being a good ancestor and building things up for future generations and for teaching future generations how to continue that for those generations, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that's all really, really exciting. Um, I'd like to move a little bit from the conversation of affordable housing 
you have so many other things you're involved in in the community, and I really want to make sure that we talk about it. Um, but speaking of the wildfires, climate change is here. It's terrifying. Um, and action needs to be done. So in our correspondence, you mentioned something that you're working on or that you're involved in. I don't know whether it's peripherally or, or center, but the Green New Deal Monterey Bay. Uh, can you say a little bit about the work that you're doing for that? Yeah, so um, it's totally an off-the-grid kind of situation with uh, Green New Deal Monterey Bay, but super happy about it because it, it's um, created the impetus for other more uh, tangible work. So the quick story on it is, you know, there was a lot of, of um, fanfare and, and uh, uh, national attention on the Green New Deal um, at the end of, I think it was 2018 going into 2019. So last year, early last year, and part of it was because there's a leadership change in Congress and Pelosi, you know, got the helm again and, and, um, you know, with the election of, of, um, uh, Alexandria, uh, um, you know, AOC, I always mess up her name. So Ocasio-Cortez, I think. Cortez, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm a huge fan and, you know, she doesn't have it right all the time, but her energy's in, in the right place. And I subscribe to a lot of what she's fighting for as well. And Green New Deal is one of those things that I, I was skeptical at first and the more I re read into it and the more I realized that it was, was a, a framework, a, um, you know, an inspirational aspirational, uh, framework for how we need to move forward. If we're going to truly move forward with addressing our climate change, uh, you know, uh, in a realistic way, we have to go big and we can't go backward. And we have to do it in a way that's going to provide equitable, um, you know, distribution of goods and bads uh, that spin off of of our economic activity. You know, trying to get off, you know, fossil fuels. And so, it's not uh, one or two or three solutions. Again, it's I see it as a framework. And so I was, I always try to bring it back to the local, right? So you you think you know, you think global, act local. And what is, what was there something at around that time, or it was again, late in the year and, and uh, going into January of, of uh, 2019, but it was clear that there was, you know, kind of a pivotal, pivotal moment in time where Congress could take a, a stand and start to kind of move the dialogue. And also with Bernie Sanders running and everything else, it was like, all this momentum and now it's like becoming an issue that's not just on the periphery it's becoming something that that is just something that is more of that the democratic brand is now starting to embrace and change and so i want to be part of that like just let's just go all in on this thing and i noticed that jimmy panetta our con congr congressional leader here locally who i have a relationship with you know he'll return my call after two or three times <laughs> yeah. And I have a connection to him through my work here with Monterey Bay Economic Partnership. He's always very helpful. And I've convened some direct conversations that we've had with him. So I have that relationship with him. I don't try to abuse those relationships in terms of you have to be strategic when you reach out to very powerful and very, very strong leaders like him. And um, but I said, you know, what? this is one thing where I, I really want to to make some noise. And so I started to kind of ping him. And I wasn't really getting any response in terms of getting his attention. And I started realizing that, you know what, this isn't my thing. This needs to be a, um, 
larger community request and ask a demand um, of him. And so I started reaching out to a few other folks across the region and in Salinas. And I was like, wow, okay, well, there's a lot of people there agree with me that agree with uh, this whole sentiment. And before we knew it, we had about 40 elected officials that were willing to sign on to a letter asking Jimmy to sign on to the Green New Deal. Nice. And that was the early January last year, and it really made a difference, and he ended up signing on to it. Um, and so that was cool because he was very skeptical, and he's getting a lot of resistance, especially here locally, where our number one you know, uh, uh, economic driver is ag, and mm -hmm. ag is definitely not too happy about being called out for all the you know, uh, greenhouse gas emissions mm -hmm. that, that they tend to produce and all those things. And this definitely would involve them doing a lot of, of things that they're not really positioned to do right now. But mm -hmm. uh, there's certain things that are good for them to do that they can make money off of at some point. But again, my experience with working with the ag industry and oil and some of these other industries is that they really don't do a whole lot on their own. They really do need to be either incentivized or forced through legislation, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, you know, and so this was another case where we have to get, uh, you know, Jimmy on board. So he ended up signing on that whole effort created again, over 40 folks that were interested in this issue. So since that point, there's been about five to 10 of those elected officials that I've been convening on about a quarterly basis. And at some point I thought I could roll that into kind of a paid situation. Um, but I was like, ah, you know, it was more important to kind of do that convening and continue moving forward. And that has morphed into climate action planning in terms of supporting more resources at the, at the county level, um, and through the air resources district and other resources that are already kind of there, mm -hmm. but they hadn't really been coordinated. So now that there's more, there's more of a coordination effort happening. And actually we were successful with getting Monterey Bay economic partnership to actually create a climate change initiative. Nice. And now, so that's what's happened is that a lot of all the, most of the major businesses and major employers, and this is healthcare industry, this is education industry, these are these local governments. Yeah. Most of the time, after you get through ag and some tech companies and other things, most of the time in a lot, especially in the rural smaller communities, government is usually one of the major employers. The largest uh, employer in uh, Monterey is actually DLI, mm. right? Yeah. The, you know, so there's, uh, that's a good example right there that, you know, the federal government in, in that case has a huge footprint in terms of our local economy Yeah. in, in Monterey. Um, and so just thinking in terms of, of if we're able to get government, the, the government directly to make a difference in its facilities and its planning and, taking on Green New Deal concepts, then the rest of the, the private side of the, of the equation will be able to um, take those as examples as, you know, uh, and hopefully start to integrate a lot more of that kind of, of effort uh, on the private side, hopefully without a whole lot of, you know, uh, hard and fast regulation. But, you know, if that's what it takes and that's what it takes. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's incredible that because my understanding and correct me if I'm wrong, is that Jimmy is a pretty moderate Democrat and that, you know, Monterey County is actually kind of it, it has a very diverse 
political scale uh, in terms of its its residents. So that's to me that's that's incredibly impressive uh, that that Jimmy that you guys are all working on that now and and it ties back to I mean affordable housing and you know it ties back i mean climate really ties back to everything it is it is this thing that's steamrolling towards us and and we all need to figure out how we can do our part to get involved in it and to be proactive um because it's going to impact every single one of us if if we don't embrace it so that's right. really really fascinating that's incredibly awesome um i have a couple of friends who i work with in the student housing coalition that emmy and i founded together with our friend gabe uh, who are going to middlebury institute for uh, international environmental policy and right now they're really working on uh on advocating for the electrification of a housing development that that miss uh, middlebury institute is working on so um, yeah, I think it's also interdependent and, and everything like that. So that sounds like a really great, fun initiative. And I think it's so to, to kind of backtrack for listeners, Monterey Bay Economic Partnership, having a climate initiative is important because their members are businesses, correct? Correct. Yeah. So, so is the, is the MBEP climate initiative voluntary or is it something that you can sign on to how does that climate initiative work within the membership yeah i mean it, it's pretty voluntary but what it means is that there's an ongoing every day every week there's somebody assigned to it right connecting mm -hmm. the dots convening the players providing best practices modeling and um, making sure that that the agenda that that um social economic environmental agenda is moving forward mm -hmm. and so and tracking legislation that that might uh be relevant um and then candidly supporting you know jimmy panetta and others to help uh continue their efforts you know jimmy is is in, an environmentalist is a you know uh leader in this space uh, you you mentioned that he's a moderate yeah absolutely when you compare him to some other other folks but at the same time given how diverse and how um, strong our local economy is that that is based on value added, you know, agriculture and hospitality, these things that that are very, you know, robust, but also we learned with, like you said, with the wildfires and COVID, the double whammy that that happened, they've been decimated, right? Mm -hmm. On hospitality, we're at like, they had like an 80% drop on, on economic activity. Ag had like a 30 or 40% drop. Um, so everyone's really kind of still suffering from that and trying to figure out how we pivot forward in this new kind of normal where, you know, we will be working more and more virtually. Mm -hmm. um, I think that could be a good thing. You know, we all saw that um, the air quality had gotten really good, right? Before the wildfires happened, we actually had a pretty good run there of, of pretty amazing air quality mm -hmm. and in the Monterey Bay because of the transportation system the way it is and so many coming coming back and forward between the living in the Salinas Valley and working in on the on the peninsula we actually over across the state I think it's like one-third of all GHG emissions come from uh, vehicle miles traveled mm -hmm. but in our region it's over two-thirds so oh my god we, so we we have a lot more GHG emissions yeah. because of our transportation system mm -hmm. than otherwise. 
So housing, when we have, when we create more housing and more affordable housing closer to the job centers, mm -hmm. that will be part of the medicine for that. Yeah. And, and then also when, when we have more folks working virtually, that is part of the medicine for that. Yeah. And, and so on and so forth. So that there's, as you said earlier, there's such a huge tie between climate change policy and action and housing and how we, you know, create our, our shared environment together. Um, that's, that's, we have to get it right going forward. We can't, we cannot afford to, um, you know, uh, have the sins of the past anymore. Yeah. In a multitude of ways, you know, um, which actually brings me to another question. You, so you also said that you're working on equitable economic development and specifically through the Salinas Planning Commission. Now, what you just said about um, about the hospitality uh, sector, about ag, about all of that kind of stuff, you know, with COVID and and with the virtual work setting and all of those kind of things, I'm curious. Well, first of all, I would love for you to talk about a little bit what you're doing with uh, economic development element and Salinas Planning Commission, but also how you guys intend to grow jobs when some of them aren't super transferable to a virtual environment, you know, like uh, like a hotel worker or or uh, somebody working in a restaurant or something like that. So I'd love if, if first you could say a little bit about Salinas Planning Commission and what you're doing for equitable economic development and getting jobs and, and keeping that going. Um, but then, yeah, also how, how we can, how the equitable aspect comes in. Yeah, so I think part of what I had sent you was just kind of some experiences that I had in the recent years around this. And I served about 12 years on the Salinas Planning Commission. Mm -hmm. uh, I was originally appointed by Ana Caballero. Mm -hmm. So at the point, at the time when she was running for uh, state assembly and she, she did her terms there, three terms, and then she um, ran for uh, successfully for state Senate. And so she's currently a Senator. Congratulations um, and during that time, what's that? I said, congratulations to her. Yeah, she's amazing, yeah. and I'm a big fan of hers. And we're we're staying, we've been able to stay connected. So, um, she uh, had appointed me, and uh, in 2006, mm -hmm. and I stayed on through three different uh, mayors. So she she com I com completed it with her. She only for a few months, and then uh, Dennis Donahue was mayor. He kept me on as his appointee, and then even Mayor Gunter. And Gunter, I actually went up to him and said, you know what, it's been a pleasure serving. I didn't help you on your campaign. I'm not sure if we really agree on, on a whole lot, uh, but I respect you and, and wish you the best. Here's my resignation. And he's like, I've heard a lot about you. I've seen you in action. I would love for you to stay here and, and you, I would love for you to be my appointment on the planning commission. And I was like, wow, I did not expect that, right? Yeah. Here's a Republican. I'm usually against, you know, yeah. I up against him all the time. I literally did not lift a finger to help this guy. Not once, not even an email, not even a, a like on any of his social media, whatever. Yeah. Knew him that well. But I was like, okay, let's see how this goes. And he basically, you know, let me do what I was going to do um, and what I had done to that point. And basically just being again a strong voice for affordable housing mm -hmm. but also you know i i took on issues around uh, again making sure that that um uh the 
parts of our community that had been disinvested got more support wherever possible. And then also when folks would come through with some proposals to have another liquor store on the corner in, in an already impacted area, that became kind of a rallying cry for me too. It was like, look, you know, I want to, yes, we want more good things, but then some of these other issues that are going to impact the community, I want to get rid of those. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of made that one of my kind of calling issues. And one of the quick little stories on that is that you can look at Rite Aid in off of West, uh, off of uh, Williams, mm -hmm. Williams and Barden in East Salinas. And that Rite Aid might be the only Rite Aid without a liquor license in, in the whole state, if not the country. Wow. And that's because we, me and others, the whole community rallied and said, you know what, we don't need that here. It's a pharmacy. That's good. We need a grocery store. We, it's a great little place to get ice cream, but we don't need another liquor store here. Mm -hmm. And we were successful with that. And so that, that's one of the cool stories that, that I share from the time that I was on. One of the things I'm, I'm really proud of. Fast forward through that time, near the end of my my time on the planning commission, what happened was in 2018, um, the election happened, or no, sorry, 2016, mm -hmm. right? So, so 20, wait, wait, when, when, now I'm losing track. I know, track. what is time? I don't know. <laughs> so yeah, it was 2016. So 2016 happens and you have, you have Trump get elected, right? Yeah. And you had, so you, this, whole, and I was like, I was devastated. I was concerned as many others are. And for all the reasons that we we're dealing with now, mm -hmm. but um, I was really upset at him because he didn't come out one way or the other. And I'm pretty sure he was a Trump, yeah, at least enabler, mm -hmm. if not supporter. Yeah. And so I was like, well, I don't even want to be associated with you anymore because, da, 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 da. but I had really gotten accustomed to having that role and I had a deal and I said, okay, well, let, you know, we're still kind of getting along, at least on housing, like we pretty much agreed on things. Mm -hmm. When we started getting outside of those other, other issues came up right away because the, the city council shifted its political dynamic to be more conservative mm. after that election. And so um, policies that would come forward that really didn't have that much support before the election, we're now getting more support, like school resource officers, mm -hmm. like uh, the whole issues around sanctuary city policies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and the list goes on. And I was like, wow, I have to get involved with these other issues. And so um, I ended up taking very public, you could look in the in the, the public uh, record on different the Californian or whatever other people were following it at the time. Mm -hmm. But I took public stances against where the mayor was at. And yet I'm his appointee on the planning commission. Yeah. So I try to do it as respectfully as I could and this and that, but we were definitely starting to be in different political camps and it was very public. And the last straw, this gets me to the economic uh, element issue that we were talking that you asked me to talk about. So what happened was that it very publicly went sideways mm. because I felt strongly that the economic development element of the city, which identified about five to 10 different specific areas in Salinas and immediately adjacent to Salinas mm -hmm. that was going to involve about 500 uh, acres of, of uh, property that was going to be, that would be annexed into the city mm -hmm. for economic development, for job creation, not so much for housing, but for job creation. Yeah. And my thing was that well, I want that more spelled out in terms of what is that going to mean for 
you know, other resources in town, whether that be for education, mm -hmm. parks and recreation, after school programming, you know, affordable housing. There's all these other needs in town. And if we're going to focus an uh, economic development activity on all these little side projects, what about the downtown? Mm -hmm. What about Northridge already? What about other, you know, commercial corridors? Mm -hmm. We should be focusing on these other infill projects I, I, simultaneously or primarily. And so I said, okay, well, I really, I recognize that that wasn't going to slow down and I didn't want to be against it, mm -hmm. but I wanted to make sure that it was more spelled out in terms of community benefits agreement. Yeah. And they have in the plan and says, Hey, yeah, we'll, we'll do some community benefits agreements, dah, 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 dah. but no one ever really talked about it. Mm -hmm. So I said, look, we, I want to make sure that there's a CBA on the record going forward so that there's a common, a common uh, goals that are spelled out yeah. and they didn't want to hear anything about it. Mayor didn't want to talk about it. Others, and, and then I'm like, okay, well then I'm not going to be for it then. And I ended up voting no on the planning commission. Mm -hmm. But what I didn't expect was that two other colleagues also voted no. And so it ended up not passing. Technically, it did not pass the planning commission, oh and it created this whole big drama. Oh my god! It was like the biggest plan that the city had ever had for its economic development. And the city manager and everybody uh, was really excited about it. And I had already been for it years before that. I had supported it already. But we got to the end and I was like, where's the community benefits agreement? Yeah. And like, and but again, no, they didn't want to talk about it. So I said, okay, fine, then you're not gonna get my vote. I'm protesting. But it ended up and then it, it played out at city council and it, it ended up passing, but it brought forward this whole concept of a community benefits agreement when we do economic development. We're talking about making sure we do it in a way where the benefits are equally distributed, um, where the, any negative consequences of economic development are also dealt with in an equitable way. Yeah. And where you know we have good jobs, and whether if that's ag tech, if that's like you're saying hospitality, if we have hospitality jobs, then um, you know we make sure that those the folks that are working those jobs get paid. Can they get paid a livable wage? Can we make sure that people have access to healthcare? Can we make sure that they live close to where they're going to work yeah. so that uh, there's not these other costs and externalities around having these low paid jobs, yeah. right? It's much easier to have a low paid job. Let's say you're in Monterey and you work downtown. It's imagine having that 10, 15, you know, 15 hour a week, right? you know, 15 hour sorry, $15 an hour job mm -hmm. and, and having to commute from Greenfield. Yeah. That's a real life situation. Like, but if they were able to live downtown, that dramatically changes their quality of life and greenhouse gas emissions and everything else. Yeah. And that adds up, you know, I used to work, I don't know how well, you know, the Bay area, but I used to work at Whole Foods in Lafayette and mm -hmm. I had coworker, I was making $15 an hour. And that was after a couple raises and yeah. I was sharing an apartment with my roommate and I was traveling. My commute was 20 minutes one way and I had people, I had coworkers who were, com their commute could be up to an hour and a half because they were coming from Pittsburgh. And wow. when you go from Lafayette to Pittsburgh, you hit highway four and there's an overpass where it, I mean, it gets down to two lanes and it is just bumper to bumper and the rush hour is actually like five hours and and that's twice a day 
And that's time, that's gas, that's wear and tear on your car. You know, I mean, it's just, it's everything. So yeah, totally understandable. Um, well, that makes, I mean, you didn't intend to, <laughs> to make it a big deal, but I think that that's great that you did. You know, I think that having demands or asks or however you want to present them to highlight important conversations Sometimes that's the power move that we have, and you probably know this a lot more than I do since it sounds like your experience on official governing bodies like this is extensive. But I think that that's, that's something you have to do sometimes is kind of go for those power moves, and sometimes it's all you've got. Um, so and that's... I, and did I tell you how that ended? No. He, I, he, they, uh, he asked me to leave the planning commission. <laughs> He's so, like... so it was it was a fatal move. So I'm just saying that I... Sometimes you do put it all on the line and you're done. You know, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, right? was it worth it? Uh, heck yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it a hundred times more. Okay, see, okay. there it is. Just you know, do your best and then walk away with no regrets. What happens, happens. But you made you 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 said earlier um, that you guys kind of started to really be in different political camps, and you. Um, you said something about school resource officers, which made me think of the information you gave me about some of the work that you've been doing under the umbrella of like mass incarceration. You know, our local uh, movement to defund the police, which is um, the Reinvest 831. I don't know a whole lot about them, but I do follow them on Instagram. And, you know, Salinas Live PD and school resource officers. So what is what is some of the stuff that you're you're doing uh, in that camp? Yeah, so that is another thing that kind of started back in uh, my UC Davis days was there was several other student activists that I'd love to uh, I love supporting every chance I got when they were taking on this whole movement around education, investing in education versus incarceration. And even back then, this was the late 90s, early 2000s, it was like they would juxtapose the, um, you know, the state's record at the time was building at the time it was like 22 uh, major state uh, you know facilities for incarceration and only one during the same time period only one university and that was like UC Merced and that had just started and it only had you know a couple thousand students or whatever but that was the difference it was like here's one campus here's 22 bazillion dollars a few million whatever mm -hmm. and so it's like wow and here we are, kind of the same situation, if not worse, right? Where we have private private prisons going on over here. We got all these disinvestments of disinvestment in public education, charter schools that are also kind of another wedge issue. Mm -hmm. So you got all that happening. And um, meanwhile, you have, you know, historically violent crime, at least, has been on a steady re reduction. And, you know, I remember in the 90s when it was really... Uh, politically hot to have all this stuff talking about three strikes, right? All oh, three strikes, you're out. And, you know, da, da 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 that was like the thing. And since then, you know, we, now we have all the repercussions of that, you know, criminal justice system kind of gone off the rails in a way that was criminalizing, you know, acts that are pretty much not okay, but basically not criminal acts anymore. You know, smoking marijuana or mm -hmm. possession of small amounts of marijuana, you could get busted big time and be locked away for a long time mm -hmm. doing that just a few years ago versus today. And yet, so then what do we do with all that, right? So just back on this whole education versus incarceration, 
Um, and I credit my wife too, because she's dedicated her life to education and, um, access to education. So she, she is grinding every day, working in Isalinas with lots of other amazing youth and their parents trying to, you know, break down and cut down that culture of poverty so that folks can, you know, get into four-year colleges, get good jobs and kick, kick down back to their community and uplift their families. And so, um, she's a constant reminder of, of how that's working there and, and that we need to continue to, and what can happen when we invest more and more in that kind of intervention. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I see incarceration and when I see uh, the police, you know, uh, um, uh, infrastructure continuing to kind of stay in this mode of, of mass incarceration, it's like, can we just get like, start to unwind that? Can we, not have it as as brutal and and can we like can we pivot from that ever mm -hmm. and a couple things that came up again in the last few years again around the same time as i was starting to kind of go sideways with the mayor um the big one of the big fights was the school resource officers because they wanted they got federal money to um hire a few school resource officers that were they were gonna place at the junior highs and the high schools and um i was like no uh, not a good idea and lots of other parents and you know um, were step stepping up and building healthy communities here in town several other organizations that were involved with that and isalinas were really starting to build a lot of uh, momentum around um uh um uh you know educating the community about what the pros and cons were mm -hmm. and showing that hey you know we're our suspension rates are going down we don't need, you know, they're saying, well, we're having, and, and crime is going down, all these other things that they're saying are issues are, uh, you know, this is, even if we do have some concerns around um, historical, uh, you know, um, problems with, with uh, crime and otherwise, the school resource officer piece isn't the, the it's a worse uh, introducing that into the community the way they wanted to could could exacerbate issues right. and could uh, introduce the criminal, you know, get more youth into the criminal justice system as opposed to getting them into counseling or right. healthcare, mental health care or better educational supports versus uh, otherwise. So that whole conversation happened a few years ago. And um, fast forward, the community was very successful in actually having almost all the school districts, we have like five or six school districts in town, all of them except one basically voted to not have any school resource officers. Wow, that's huge. And it was huge. And so um, most of the federal grant then went away. They were, the city was able to park some of that money at the, the uh, what is it, Santa Rita school district. Um, but all the other major school districts did not accept that. And so there were still kind of, there remains today still folks kind of on both sides of that argument. And I started becoming much more involved, especially when it came to the school district where my kids go, because I could not think about why do you need to have, and in my case, it was three kids. I had three uh, kids in one elementary school. Mm -hmm. And I was like, do you really need to have guns on that school? Yeah. No. Right? It's like, what the heck is going on here? And so that whole conversation um, uh, happened again, and it will probably continue to come up. Um, but the next thing that kind of happened last year, or maybe almost a year, more than a year ago now, Live PD came to town. They started their um, programming 
And it just kind of happened. And the chief of police did not have any kind of community engagement around that. Say, hey, is this a good idea? Is it not? They just basically, she just kind of implemented it. And the city is supposed to be going through the last few years, this whole recognition around uh, governing with, um, what is it called, uh, race forward. They, they've been trying to um, engage the city staff and the community with this conversation around governing for racial equity mm-hmm. and that when they take on new policies or projects, how is this going to you know, move forward in a way that's going to create a more equitable, more inviting, inclusive space? Awesome. And so I saw the Live PD as a direct affront to that. Totally. Like, how are you not only is the programming like, OK, fine, agree or disagree with it, but you didn't even have the conversation mm-hmm. of whether this is something that we wanted to do. And so I would see it on Friday. I'd see it from other people would come up to me or I'd be part of conversation and be like, oh man, did you see this guy get busted? Oh, they know so-and-so. It was like drama. And it was like dragging us down into the, like the lowest denominator. And then also what killed me was I'd see it on social media and they would say, oh, this is what, you know, these, everything the president was saying, right? Trump was saying, oh, these rapists, murders, that's what's happening in Salinas. And I'm like, there's elements of that all over. And this is not what Salinas represented of Salinas. So you're going to put Salinas on a national, international stage, and they're going to think of us in these terms. When we have amazing students, we have amazing people that are doing professional, cutting edge, scientific work, ag industry, ag tech stuff. We have so many other stories to to put, and that's not going to be up there. So it's like, um, so we fought, I fought that and helped lead the charge locally. And they ended up pro- providing all the impetus at the end to where Life PD basically said, it's not, you know, there's too much controversy over here. We're going to go away. So that happened. Nice. And then that was the end of last year, 2019. And so then we got into the pandemic and then all this other racial justice issues, you know, ca- came to the forefront with, with uh, George Floyd's mm-hmm. murder very public murder and all these other issues that kind of have also come to a forefront with, with, um, you know, the, the African-American black community being extraordinarily, you know, abused, uh, by the system. And so uh, the last piece I'll say is that it brings us to this point where, um, or again, are we gonna continue to stand up a system? that is historically and systemically racist Mm -hmm. and you kind of almost have to you know you either agree with that statement right that there is a a systemic racist system or you don't and that's the divide in this country right now yeah i have that in my family i have that with some other friends it's like look i get it i get it but for me like we let's use a fact-based you know analysis and dating back 400 years like this is like a very systemic mm-hmm. fact-based you know view of what's happening it's not just my anecdotal your anecdotal view of the world this is what the system the system was designed to do a certain thing and it's doing just that yeah it, it is uh, systemically criminalizing people that look a certain way and live in certain places and that's what we're dealing with so we have to either so reinvest 831 is just one of the smaller players here again you mentioned because we we there's a group of five to dozen of us to kind of engage in that mm-hmm. and just try to put out really helpful information 
and try to engage in at a policy level as well, but we connect to others that are working at a, a more activist level, you know, agents of change, there's building healthy communities, um, several other folks, uh, individuals and people that are parts of organizations or other part of the movement that uh, are important. And then also candidates that have really stepped forward. One of my really close friends and colleagues, John Wizard, who's running for mayor of yeah. Seaside, leading this this charge. And it's hard. I mean, he's he's a target of the some of the strongest, most vocal, most well-funded, um, you know, uh, political uh, operative, uh, you know, systems out there, players in the in the Seaside Police Officers Association, and they don't act by themselves, mm -hmm. those police officers associations talk, right? Mm -hmm. um, folks that, that wave that blue van banner, they all talk and they're all part of a very important, you know, brotherhood, sisterhood that I respect and and uh, hold up. Um, but hopefully there's enough people in, in that sphere um, and others that see that there needs to be change yeah. and that we're not talking about taking, all, uh, taking away every red cent and defunding every single thing that they're doing. No, we want to defund the activities that they should not be doing. Right. Um, and every call does not necess necessitate a gun being pulled right. uh, and so on and so forth. So that's the system that we're trying to, uh, you know, again, people can get upset about the the language that we use and, you know, but I stand by that, you know, I, people say, oh, that's so, you know, it's so inflammatory, but that's part of the purpose, right? I mean. I'm not cussing. I'm not saying something about your mom. I'm saying about talking about defunding, yeah. right? Taking some resources away from an activity that I don't believe in. It's that simple. That and is harmful to certain groups of people. Correct. So, yeah. we're, you know, we, we've, we've rebranded in terms of a lot of the messaging. So it is more about reinvestment because that's more palatable and I get it. I definitely understand messaging and marketing and all that. Yeah. Um, but again, in certain in this conversation, because I know you understand and agree with it and others, we get where the defunding comes in and why that's important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think language, the language that you use around issues, like you said, messaging, um, it's so important. And, uh, and I think that, you know, I had a conversation with my stepmother the other day and I, I, you know, these are, these are my views and opinions. These don't, uh, these aren't those of Middlebury as an institute. I'll say that disclaimer, but, um, you know, I'm very openly, very liberal and, and so, and I, 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 you know, walk in those circles. So I had just gotten off the phone with somebody, um, was talking about like a defund the police movement in Oakland. And so I came downstairs and I was talking uh, with my stepmother and I said very like casually, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, like we were talking about this, like defund the police thing. And I'm analyzing it like economically and all this kind of stuff in my class. And she goes, can we see something else? She's like, do we really want to defund them? And I was like, oh, does that make you uncomfortable? And I didn't even mean it like sassy or rude. I just, you know, she's very near and dear to me. I love her so much. And it hadn't even occurred to me that that language, you know, you can you can get in your echo chambers. So I really appreciate that you're in these realms where, you know, there are people outside those echo chambers and you do have to meet people in the middle. And my mom always used to say, you meet people where they are. And it kind of goes back to circling to the equitable economic development because reinvesting 
it's just smart economically. Like in my in my humble opinion, the amount of money that's being used in police departments and it varies from city to city, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, data shows that the more you invest in things like you're talking about, like community and education and childcare and, you know, um, public transit and all of those kind of things, crime goes down. It's, it's an inverse relationship. As you invest in community, you see crime rates go down. And so for me, in, in my humble opinion, it's just smart to reinvest. And in that conversation, you, you can even talk about like how much you're reinvesting at, on, you know, what timeline, because change does take time. And right now we live under, again, in my opinion, a very militarized police model. Um, and I've never been a parent, but I was a nanny for like 10 years. And to me, it's kind of like parenting, right? You know, if you are... If you bring this energy to your child that anything they do wrong, like your children in elementary school with those SRO officers, why does there need to be a gun? To me, it feels like a self-fulfilling prophecy where, you know, you assume they've done bad to begin and they start living up to your expectations or they start. Um, it's like this this very subconscious narrative that comes out. And I I just think that, you know, it's so important to invest in the good parts of community not that police are bad i'm not saying police are bad to anybody listening um i'm just saying that the way that we approach this and you made mention of mental health and the amazing work that your wife is doing just yay for the huertas power couple over here um you know talking about education and mental health I just I think that it's it's really great that you're bringing this work to um, to Monterey County and and you know to Salinas and and all of those kind of things. So that's all really incredible. I love how much you're giving back to our. I say our. I've moved up to the Bay Area for remote learning, but my heart is still in Monterey. I'm only I'm only three weeks into being back in the Bay. <laughs> I wasn't going to tell anybody, <laughs> um, but my heart's still there and I'm still there in, in my mind. So, you know, Matt, I'm just really, really grateful for your time and, and for what all the all the content you've brought to this conversation. And, you know, not just what you're doing for the Latinx community in Monterey County, but what you're doing for everybody. I just I just want to take a second to say thank you so much. It seems like your life mission and your life purpose. And I respect that so much. And I'm really grateful for your time. I really appreciate you for, for giving me uh, some time and it's helpful to reflect on again, not only my work and, and all my work is so collaborative. It, it, it's really kind of, um, you know, it, it's great to be taking a bow with so many other people um, and, and seeing the progress that, that is made possible when we really do have, amazing people just locking arms and moving forward and um one step at a time one step at a time well that's all the that's all the questions i have and i've taken up an hour and 15 of your time so with that i just want to say thank you and and i'm really excited to see what else i'll probably be there since i'm working very closely with emmy but what else happens in the community in the future so thanks again Thank you. We'll be calling on you. Appreciate your support. Talk A soon. Absolutely. Bye, Matt. Have a good one.